Good morning. Uh, if you all want to flip to 1 Corinthians for me, 1 Corinthians 7, I will read it for us, and then Rob will come preach it. All right, I'm going to be reading uh, verses 1 through 16 and then 25 through 40, so buckle up. All right, now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Now as a concession, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, each one, each of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. 
I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart, to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she's happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. All right, well, good morning, Doxa Church. Nick, thanks for reading that. Guys, we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, all right? And this is week nine of a 28-week study through this letter of, of 1 Corinthians, which is, we've been studying this. You know, we've come to this realization that, that 1 Corinthians is not just like an ancient letter written to a church that is far removed by time and just distance, right? But actually, like 1 Corinthians, like all the rest of the Bible, is just really timeless and timely for us. That it's Paul, as he's speaking to the Corinthians, God is using this to ex- like speak to us in just extremely relevant ways to help us just navigate the everyday stuff of life here in Madison. And I'm really excited to talk about 1 Corinthians 7, but before we jump into that, if you are new to Doxa, I want to welcome you again. My name is Rob. I'm one of the pastors here. It's, it's honestly just a, a great, like, an honor for us to have you part of the Doxa family today. I say this all the time, and for those of you who have been coming around, maybe this kind of seems like a, a canned thing that I always say, but if you are, in fact, newer and we haven't had a chance to meet yet, I would love to, to meet you today. So before you head out, guys, come grab me, say hi, introduce yourself. I would absolutely love that, but, but welcome to, to Doxa, okay? So let's get into this, okay? You likely noticed, as, as Nick read 1 Corinthians 7, there's a lot going on in this chapter, right? A few weeks ago, we were in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we kind of looked at this pervasive problem of sexual immorality in the church of Corinth. Which is honestly, as we, we talked about this, it's, it's very relevant to us today. It's very similar, eerily similar to our culture in our city today. And as we went through chapter 6, we, we really just confronted some of the cultural lies and confusion that we believe around the topic of sex. And so if you did miss that message that Sunday, I just want to encourage you to go back and listen to that for for two reasons. One, it's going to really help you to understand what we're going to be talking about here in chapter 7. But then additionally, like for me, that was a message that I wish I would have heard years ago. Because if I would have, it would have maybe changed the direction of my life and really kept me and saved me from a lot of like just destructive tendencies that I had throughout my life. All right, but chapter 6, Paul really kind of ends with telling us to flee from sexual immorality. But now as you look at chapter seven, right, he's gonna say that while we're to flee sexual immorality, what we should also be doing is not just fleeing, but kind of seeking to to strive after like a, a full sexual morality in the context of marriage and singleness. And so as we get into this, I wanna set the stage for just some historical background. But if you look back to verse one, this is where what Paul starts. He says, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. 
And so here's what we have, okay? The rest of 1 Corinthians is really just gonna be kind of like a question-answer type flow and dialogue from Paul and the Corinthians. That the church in Corinth, as they navigated the everyday stuff of life, they were going through some hard times, dealing with some sin, were looking for some advice, and so they wrote the Apostle Paul who started this church years ago, and they basically said, here, here's some questions, will you help us out? And then Paul is just writing back to them giving them some answers, some specific wisdom on the things that they asked about. And this is gonna be basically the flow structurally for the rest of the letter. But here in chapter seven, all right, something that they wrote, while we don't have that exact letter, it revolved and contained this phrase in the second half of verse one. Take a look. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And you'll notice in your Bible, there's quotation marks around that. So somebody said this. And the question that we have to ask is like, who said this? Is this like Paul's words to us, like saying like, this is good, like you shouldn't do this, or is this the Corinthians doing this? And, and really, as we look at the context of, of chapter seven, what's being said here, we can just like kind of ascertain that this is a quote from the Corinthians. And this is involved in one of the questions that they were writing to Paul about, because here's what is happening historically, okay? As we looked at chapter six, the Christians in Corinth, they were just looking around their culture, they were looking around their city, and they were just seeing like the rampant sexual perversion in their culture. They were seeing how it was just causing destruction in their church, and they decided that abstinence was the best path forward for everyone. All right, they noticed that their church was just kind of like falling into decline. Like they noticed that it was like the church in Corinth was basically like turning into like a sequel of like the Jersey Shore, right? Just everybody's like sleeping with each other. It's just going terrible. There's a bunch of weird stuff happening. Like people are sleeping and making out with their stepmoms. People are going to this temple for worship, like a bunch of weird stuff. And so this church said, enough is enough with all this sexual immorality, no more sex for anyone. All right, they're like the soup guy from Seinfeld. You remember that? No soup for you. This is them, okay? But this is what was going on. And it wasn't just for single people, right? That makes sense, right? We understand the context of of marriage and sexuality. If you're single, not married, don't have sex. But what they were doing is they were taking that ideology, that that practice and idea of abstinence, and they were including it into celibate marriages. And so what you had in the church in Corinth were just many married couples that were practicing abstinence. And Paul, while agreeing with some of their sentiments about sexual immorality, he's writing to kind of clarify their misunderstandings. And so basically, as Paul's writing in 1 Corinthians 7, he basically says this, remaining single and abstaining from sex is good. He says, this is a a good path forward. This is a God-honoring, God-glorifying path for you to walk. And Paul's actually saying, this is my path. Because Paul is writing, he's a single adult. This is the path that he's on. He says it's good. But then he goes on to say that marriage is also a good path. And in that context, abstinence is not a regular rhythm. And this seems like pretty simple, right? We get this. If you're not married, if you're single, don't have sex, abstain. But if you're married, regular sex with your spouse is the norm and it's really, really good. And this is all based on God's design for sex, which we looked at in chapter six. But here's the big picture that Paul is holding up that relates to all of us. And I think this will be really helpful for every single one of us. All right, Paul's really just holding up like two ways of living, two ways of life, singleness and marriage. And what he's saying is like both of these are good. And our goal is really just to embrace how God has called us to live right now 
and live faithfully in that. But we have to ask the question, okay, like, why does Paul even need to say this, right? Because that seems like pretty straightforward, like this is two good things. And maybe you, you hear that and you think, wow, okay, like not super deep there. But here's what we need to understand what's happening in Corinth. There was really like just two obsessions in this city. All right, the Corinthian culture was just obsessed with sex. We talked about this with the temple. But also in this city, the Jews of this time were obsessed with marriage. And so the Corinthians were saying like, don't get married, like be single, it's, it's way better. Like just go to the temple when you need your physical needs met, go have fun and then come back. You don't have to have a wife, you don't have to have kids, like don't be drugged down by that. Sex and freedom, singleness, great, actually better. But the Jews on the other hand in this time, they saw singleness as kind of like a lesser way of life, a way that you wouldn't honor God and be faithful to him and his calling. And so if you were single in the Jews' eyes, they almost kind of looked at you as like a second-class citizen. So you had like just two radically different views. And Paul is saying, you guys both got it wrong. Because both are good. And so here's the core of 1 Corinthians 7, okay? Throughout this whole chapter, Paul's just simply holding up marriage. He's holding up singleness as gifts of God. And he's saying these are both good paths to life to honor and glorify God. And in each of those paths, our call is to simply live faithfully in that calling. And if you look down to verse 17, this is really kind of the thing that holds it all together and makes it all make sense. He says, only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. And we're gonna get more into this next week, but here's what I'll say. God has given you a call right now. Married life, single life. And in either case, if you're married or single, the ultimate goal of your life is this, to live faithfully to God wherever he has placed you. And so this is how I wanna handle the rest of our time, okay? I could say a lot about chapter seven, but I've decided to not make this a two-hour sermon, okay? Because I could do it, I don't know if you can endure it, okay? So that's my gift to you today. It's gonna be a relatively short sermon, okay? You're welcome. But here's what I wanna do, okay? I wanna kinda take like a 10,000-foot flyover of this book, of this chapter rather. And I wanna just kinda pull out some, some really implications for us that are really helpful. And as we get into this, okay, I'm gonna say some things and we're gonna touch on some things, but I'm not gonna get in the weeds of it. But as your pastor, I just wanna tell you this, okay? If you have more questions about this, like I would love to talk to you. Like if, if we start talking about something, you're like, man, I would really like to spend some more time on this. Like it'd be really, really helpful if I could just talk to somebody more in depth about that. Let me just tell you guys, don't hesitate to reach out to me. Come up to the stage, find me afterwards, email me, call me, whatever you got. I would love to sit and talk to you. I'm not Dr. Phil, but I have a Bible and a brain, and so we can talk about this together, okay? But we, I would love to do that, all right? So here's what I wanna do. We're just gonna hold up marriage and singleness, draw out several marks and perspectives of how we can faithfully live and flourish in both states. We're gonna start with marriage. Here is the first mark for married couples to embrace. That in order to live faithfully and flourish in our marriages, per God's design, verse one. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman, but because of the temptation to sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. 
For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Doxa, here's the first mark. Married couples, we need to live as one. Live as one. And maybe you look at those verses and you're saying, I don't see this language. And that's really great because that means you're thinking critically and you're paying attention. This language is not there. But verse 4 is actually really key to our understanding to faithfully live and flourish in marriage. And for those of you who are married, here's the truth about you and your spouse. You are, in fact, one. And while you might not feel like it even today as you sit next to her or him, or you don't feel like it at certain times throughout your marriage, every single married couple is, in fact, one. Now, let me just acknowledge two things, okay? First, in these verses, Paul, if you look back, he's talking about the importance of sex in marriage, and we're going to get to this in a minute. But second, although this text does not explicitly teach the idea of oneness, it implicitly assumes it. All right, see, Paul's vision of marriage is dependent upon Jesus' teachings, which is, has its foundations in the book of Genesis, the account of creation, which we studied a few months back. But in Mark chapter 10, this is what Jesus said. It's going to come up here on the screen. Jesus says this, but from the beginning of creation... God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. And so married couples in here, you just need to know this about you and your spouse. You're one. There's a math equation going to come up here, and this is so important to understanding biblical marriage. One plus one equals one. And we can laugh and be like, that's not, that's not right. It's two, right? No. In the Bible, the way that God has designed marriage and sex, when a person, when two people come together in the covenant of marriage, they are in fact one. One plus one equals one. Marriage is this, this one flesh union, and it's intended to literally like meld people together, meld identities together. All right, so to put it another way, like marriage and married life is really the abandonment of autonomy. And so in my marriage, like for me to live a biblical and just enjoy a vibrant marriage, hear this, it's not about me, it's about us. And this is huge. I really think that one of the reasons why so many marriages struggle, why so many marriages fail, is based on this root issue. That we as people that are just radically affected by sin, we are so selfish we are naturally so egocentric that we think about me. We don't tend to think about us. And this idea of oneness, guys, don't skirt past this. This is huge. You want to flourish in marriage? Figure this out. Talk about this. Because as many people step into marriage, we forget. Or maybe we don't even understand that the, the covenantal bond that God has created us to enjoy we lose our complete sense of like independence and autonomy. And Paul, he's, he's laying this out because he's setting the stage to talk about sex and divorce. And this is such a key biblical truth for us to understand. And he's saying like selfishness in marriage cannot exist if we help to flourish. If we help to live faithfully as God has created us to as husband and wife, like you cannot be selfish. Because in a healthy marriage, there's a beautiful giving up of your autonomy to the other person. All right, that in a flourishing, faithful marriage, basically two selfish me's start thinking 
about one unified us. It's not about me, it's about us. It's, it's, it's one life, one vision, one bed, one suffering, one bank account, one family, one mission, and so on. It's just one. There's no barriers, there's no hiding, but it's just total openness, it's total sharing, it's total solidarity until death do us part. I mean, this is how the Bible talks about marriage, and this is very different, right? Let's, even as I talk about this, this is very different from our world. Like the worldly view of marriage is, is radically different from what I just shared. If you, if you look at this, it's gonna come up here on the screen. I think the, the world tends to think about marriage as like a capital H, right? Is that you have like two married people that they're living independent lives and they're striving really hard to maintain connection. This is how we tend to think about it, a capital H. We're just running and are doing our separate thing and we're trying to hold hands together, but you know, we're doing our separate thing. This is not how the Bible lays out marriage. The Bible lays out marriage as more of like an inverted Y. Like it's two separate people coming together, merging together, becoming one in pursuit of Christ. All right, listen to what the Bible says in Genesis 2. It says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they, will sh- they shall become one flesh. Actually, I'll tell you, like for, for my marriage, like Lisa and I think about it like this, that it takes two people to live one good life. This is what we're talking about the starting block for understanding how to live faithfully and flourish in your marriage is about sharing a life. And that doesn't necessarily mean like you lose yourself, but it does mean that you prioritize your marriage. Okay, that a biblical marriage, there's you, there's me, and there's us, and us always wins. It's gotta be us. And so for those of you who are married, like let me just say this, for you to thrive, and for you to faithfully live in God's design of marriage, you and your spouse need to talk about this stuff. I mean, very practically, your next date night, maybe even just on the way home, you talk about this, and you ask, like, what would it look like for us to live more as one? Like, how are we doing with this? These are the right questions to ask in your marriage. Many marriages, people don't wanna ask those questions because all types of stuff comes out. But if we wanna flourish, This is what we have to be doing. Ask these things, and guys, I'll tell you, like, marriage doesn't even begin to feel like marriage until you understand this idea of oneness. So important, and it's so important, because if we don't understand this, the next two things that we're gonna draw out from this text, they won't make any logical sense, okay? But we're one. Now here's what else we can see that marks a faithful, flourishing marriage as God intends. It's this, it's selfless service. Look back to verse three. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights. Some of you are like, haven't been to church for a while, conjugal rights? What is this, like prison mic or something like that, right? It's, like, it's in the Bible, guys. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise, the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come back together again. So what? so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. All right, so let's, let's talk about this. The general witness of scripture is that a beautiful marriage is maintained when a husband and a wife put each other's needs before their own. And this is expressed through selfless service. And here in our passage, like Paul, he speaks with just like great candor about the importance of, of a married couple serving each other in sexual intimacy. All right, and as he wrote this to the Corinthians, 
right? You just need to understand that this was totally radical in terms of like gender and identity. All right, see, women in this time, they were considered more possessions than they were people. And so when Paul says that the husband's body is not his own, guys, you just don't understand, like, this is radical. When Paul says the husband's body owns or is owned by his wife, this is something that has never been said before. All right, Paul was confronting like a very patriarchal culture, and he was like giving like women the, the really just the place and the dignity and the rights that they innately have from God. So Paul's teaching was just radically progressive here. And as he writes this, he's trying to teach us something about sex and marriage. All right, that sex is something that not only cements a man and a woman together, making them one. Again, this goes back to what we talked about a couple weeks ago in 1 Corinthians 6, but it also, it's intended to yield intimacy and health and just closeness in marriage. And this is why he says, if you look back, that couples should not deny sexual intimacy from one another. That really the only time that this is acceptable is in times when the couple agrees to abstain for the sake of prayer. Been married 12 years, I haven't done that yet, but I'm gonna think about it, I'll pray about it, right? But there's times that Paul is saying it's much like fasting, that there's something going on with your family, your kids, and you get off your bed, you get on your knees, and you pray together, and Paul says that is good. But even after that, he says come back together. And so sex in marriage is about serving my spouse. It's not just getting what I want. Doxa, just hear that. Men, I'll speak to you. It's their needs above my needs. It's the husband serving his wife and the wife serving her husband, ensuring that their physical needs are met. It's just mutual, like this mutual like thing and just like service expressed out of the oneness that is our marriage. It's about adding pleasure and joy to your spouse's life. And while sex, here the sex is not at the center of Paul's vision of marriage. All right, if you wanna read this with your wife, go to Ephesians chapter five this week. Paul will give you a more in-depth explanation of how he sees marriage. And so while sex is not at the center of his vision, sex is to be like an integral part of a healthy marriage. And there's most definitely gonna be physical reasons at times in some couples where a couple might not be able to engage in like a regular sex life. Right, but what is clear from Paul is he's saying this, is that in the marriage between two healthy adults where sex is absent, it's really just kind of an indicator that it is an unhealthy marriage. And we just need to talk about this. Because I love, the Bible is so honest, and God is a father and he's a helper, and he's trying to help us as his kids understand the life that he has created and given to us. But along with this, guys, look back to verse five. Paul also shows us that sex serves as a protection in our marriage. That this form of like self-giving service is just a powerful protection against sexual temptation. Point, or verse five just points to this like reality that sexual temptation is a very real part of life and it can cause really real problems in a marriage. And Paul is saying, that regular sexual activity between a husband and a wife will help mitigate this in your marriage. And we talked about this again in, in chapter six, right? That it's, sex is not just like this physical thing. It's not just like me eating a sandwich every day for lunch, right? But it's a deeply spiritual thing. 
That sex is uniting and it's protecting. It's, it's weaving together two people as one where protection and unity can happen. And so let me just give you a challenge for the, you married couples. Don't deprive each other. All right, this week, literally have sex. Right, if you're new and you're thinking, did that pastor just tell me to have sex with my wife? Yes, you're welcome, okay? <laughs> welcome to Doxa. Because we, we seek to like, we seek to live for the glory of God and the part of the way that we do this is to follow his design of marriage. And so for you married couples, this is exactly what this text is trying to tell us, is to do this. It's not, it doesn't need to be a weird thing. It's just like, this is how we should view it. And so do this, engage with this. And I know that in a room like this, there's all types of different people in, in couples, right? Some of you married couples, you're, you're brand new, you're trying to figure it out, and like, let's just be honest, like, intimacy can be just difficult and awkward at times, to try and figure it out and make it be good. Let me just tell you, just to have fun, right? Just relax. And if it becomes like this thing that's just very difficult and you can't work it out, guys, grab another couple. It's the beauty of the family of God, and say, hey, you love Jesus, you love us, talk to us, help us learn. This is a big part of being the family of God. Some of you, you're more in my camp, right? You have, you have a job, you have kids, like life is just insane, like you're busy all the time. Here's what I tell you, grab your calendar and put it on the, the calendar. You're like, you really schedule it? I don't, yeah, just put business socks on Thursday. I don't know, whatever you gotta do. Put it on the calendar because guys, we put things on the calendar all the time that are important to us. And you need to understand how important sex is in the context of marriage. And others of you, you may, you've been married longer than I've been alive. And maybe this is just a reminder, like, that this is a really important part of every single marriage. And so there's the challenge. So a faithful, flourishing marriage that God intends us to live and enjoy is marked by oneness, selfless service, and the last thing that we'll look at in verses 10 through 16. To the married, I give this, this charge. Not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest I say, and I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, he should not divorce him. All right, it's this doxa. A faithful, flourishing marriage requires radical commitment. Radical commitment. In the world's eyes, maybe even crazy commitment. All right, so Paul, he turns his attention and he just offers advice concerning divorce. And up front, I love how Paul just doesn't like skate past this. Up front, he states God's ideal in verse 10. Look, he says, the wife should not separate from her husband and the husband should not divorce his wife. And as he states this, he reminds his readers that this is not just his own opinion, but this is just a reiteration of Jesus' teaching on the subject of divorce, as we see in places like Matthew chapter five, chapter 19. And by referring to Jesus' teaching on the matter, Paul really just reaffirms the basic principle of marriage, which is this, for you married couples, Remember this, it's permanency. The two become one flesh in the covenant of marriage forever. And the truth that Paul is sharing here is the idea that Christian couples 
should not give in to the destruction of divorce, even though it has become widely normalized and acceptable and even encouraged. But instead, as Christians, we live as set-apart ones. We should do everything in our power to nurture and to build our marriages on the ideal of permanency. And so Paul, without denying the seriousness of that ideal, that marriages should be a lifelong commitment, he also acknowledges the reality of sin in our world. Right? That every marriage, no matter how great your marriage is or you see other people's marriages, every marriage has been tainted by sin. Making the ideal of permanency like a really challenging task at time for people. And we've seen this. Right? Some marriages, some of you have lived through that, have been so twisted by the fall and by sin that this ideal is not upheld. And Paul, as the Corinthians asked about this, he says, here's some practical guidelines. And to sum it up, Paul basically says that for those, those Christians whose marital bonds have been severed by sin and selfishness, Paul, Paul counsels the divorced couple to either remain unmarried or reconcile with one another. Now, the language that Paul uses here, though, it does seem to indicate that he's talking about marriages that end in divorce because of, like, mild reasons, mild differences, rather than serious matters such as, like, adultery or abandonment or abuse. Because when we look at Jesus' teaching on the matter, all right, Jesus allowed for Christians who have been divorced due to adultery to remarry, and Paul even says if abandonment occurs, while God hates divorce, he gives this concession. But with all this, guys, here's the point. Marriage is designed to be a permanent thing, and it's going to take radical commitment for you to stay with it. So, like, irreconcilable differences, like personal happiness, like even the thought that, like, I just don't love you anymore, you just need to know that these are not biblical reasons for divorce. And, Docs, marriage is like this great, beautiful gift that God has given us, but it's so hard to keep good. Married couples, amen? It is hard it is so hard to keep good. There are gonna be times, and for you engaged couples or you're young married and be like, it's not gonna be my story. Okay, we'll talk in a couple years, right? But there's gonna be times where you're gonna be like, I don't wanna stick this out. I don't like you. I, I mean, I'm just, I'm just being real, right? It's just that that's gonna be times like that. And it's gonna, you're gonna have to fight to stay together. It's gonna take radical commitment to do this. We have to fight. Young married couples, let me tell you this. You guys have been married longer than me, let me remind you of this. We're gonna have to constantly fight to be unified and intimate. Constantly fight. That fight will not stop until we're dead. There's always gonna be something that comes in that's gonna cause conflict in our marriages. And with that conflict, you know, here's the thing that Lisa and I say to each other all the time. You can go grab her and be like, what do you guys say to each other all the time as it relates to conflict? And she'll tell you this. I'll meet you at the cross. This is what it's about. Divorce isn't even a word in our marital vocabulary. We don't say that in our house. And so married couples, again, talk about this. Ask each other, like, how can we fight to remain close and unified and intimate? And then do it. And so this is some of the marks on a faithful, 
flourishing marriage. But as Paul wrote this, he's not just holding up marriage and saying like, yes, this is the good thing, singleness, not so much. He's holding up singleness as well and saying, this is good. And so for those of you who are single, you're tired of hearing marriage sermons, you're like, okay, you're finally speaking to me, here's what I'll ask you. Like, how do you think about your singleness? Biblically, let me just share this. First, I want you to understand this about your singleness. Singleness is not a problem to be solved. You need to know that. Those of you who are single and maybe you're struggling with your singleness, your singleness is not a problem to be solved. Look at verse seven. Paul says, I wish that all were as I myself am. Well, how is Paul? He's single. And then he says, but each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. So here's the implication in this. Singleness is not a problem or a deficiency. It's just a gift, just like marriage. It's different. This is what Paul tells us. All right, in her book, The Quest for Love, Elizabeth Elliot, she writes this. If you are single today, the portion assigned to you for today is singleness. It is God's gift Singleness ought not to be viewed as a problem nor marriage as a right. God in his wisdom and love grants either as a gift. And maybe you're, you're sitting here as a single and you're thinking, singleness as a gift. That sounds like something a married guy would tell me, right? <laughs> but maybe this idea of singleness is, is really hard for you to see as good. That as a single adult, you have desires, and it's not just for like sex, but it's for relationship, it's for companionship, right? And, and I get that, right? You, you listen to marriage sermons, it's really hard. You look at your married friends, and you're like, man, I wish I had that. And it's just hard for you because you think that your lot in life as a single in this moment is less than a married person's. But what Paul does here is he just absolutely shatters that thought on singleness, he says it's not only just a valid option for how you lived your life, but it might even be a better one. Look at verse 38. Paul says, so then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. And so doxa, for those of you who might have this thought, the thought that like singleness is a deficiency or it's not really that good, you can totally think that. But I just want you to understand that this is not the biblical way of thinking about your lot in life right now as a single. I mean, if you even think about this, like our founder of Christianity, Jesus Christ, and our leading theologian, Paul, were both single. They were single. And in this, like single adults cannot be seen and should not feel as somehow less fulfilled and lacking because Jesus, a single man, was the perfect man. Hebrews chapter four, 1 Peter chapter two. And so the biblical reality is that singleness is a fact a gift and it's actually good. And Paul even goes on to say that there's actually advantages to the single life. Look at verse 28. Those who marry will have worldly troubles and I would spare you of that. Now skip down to verse 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about the worldly things, how to please his wife and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay a restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Paul calls the married persons burdened, right? That while marriage is like a great gift, it's hard and it takes a lot of work. It really just does. And what Paul is saying is that while you are single, you have greater freedom 
from those burdens. And there's actually practical advantages of that for you. All right, so, so very practically, like as an unmarried person, you have like a unique freedom that will allow you to serve in many ways that are just not possible with a family and a spouse. And so Paul is just saying like, enjoy that freedom as your schedule allows it. And Paul is living out what he's talking about. He's not like a married guy talking to single guys and being like, don't worry about it that much. Paul is saying, this is actually like a good way to live. I'm living it. And he's so practically, like he's saying, leverage your life. Go on mission trips. Like build deep relationships with friends. Spend more time in the Bible. Serve in radical ways. He's saying, use your time and your gift of singleness right now in a way to glorify God and advance the kingdom in a way that a married couple can't. There's advantages. Now, let me just back out of that and just say this, okay? As I talk about singleness, like, I don't want to be cold with this. Right? I don't want to just say, well, here's what the Bible says. You shouldn't, don't worry about it. Like, just take advantage of this. Like, I don't want to be cold because I know that some of you, your singleness is just a great pain that you carry around. And I get it. All right? I was once single, desired to be married. And even today, I have close friends that are getting older and they really desire to be married. And I pray for them regularly that God would send them a spouse, a godly spouse and a godly companion. And as I've talked with many singles who have like a deep longing to be married, there can be this thought that creeps in. Why is God holding out on me? Like why wouldn't God give me like the good gift of marriage that I so desire. And the question that I often ask in response to this, and for those of you who are, who are single today and you may be struggling with it, I wanna ask you this question. Is God still good to you? I mean, if you never get married, if you never like have the privilege and the joy of, of birthing a child, like is God still good to you? Really think about that. Is he still good if you remain single? A woman named Paige Benton Brown, in her classic article, Singled Out by God for God, she says it this way, and I quote, God, can God be any less good to me on the average Tuesday morning than he was on that monumental Friday afternoon when he hung on the cross in my place? The answer is a resounding no. God will not be less good to me tomorrow either because God cannot be less good to me. His goodness is not the effect of his disposition but the essence of his person. Not an attitude but an attribute. I long to be married. My younger sister got married two months ago. She now has an adoring husband, a beautiful home, a whirlpool bathtub, and all new corningware. I think that's silverware. I'm not sure. I don't really know. Is God being any less good to me than he is to her? The answer is a resounding no. God will not be less good to me because God cannot be less good to me. It is a cosmic impossibility for God to shortchange any of his children. I am single because God is so abundantly good to me because this is his best for me. It is a cosmic impossibility that anything could be better for me right now than being single. The psalmist confirmed that I should not want, I shall not want, because no good thing will God withhold from me. And so, because I'm out of time, but let me just say this, Doxa, our ultimate call in life is this. 
is whatever state we've been called, married or single, we're to embrace God's goodness and faithfully live for him. And the source of our contentment in any state, married or single, is this. Paige Benton Brown says it beautifully. It is a cosmic impossibility for God to withhold good from his children. Because this is how it always goes back to Jesus. We talk about this. Every page of every book of your Bible is always about Jesus. It's a big arrow pointing to Jesus. And right here is a big arrow pointing to Jesus. Because when you're tempted to think that God is not good, remind yourself of the gospel. Because how do we know that God is not, er, that is, God is good, right? Romans 8.32, that God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for you. This is how we know that God is good in all things. And God has given us all that we need in Jesus so that we can trust him that he, has give, he can and he will give us everything we need in our lives. That God is a father, he's a lover, he's a savior, and he's our helper. And so wherever you find yourself this morning, he's the one that you ultimately need. He will help you. He will help you with your sin. He will help you with loss. He will help you with a perspective. He will help you in your marriage. He will help you with your singleness. He is a good father. Amen? He's a helper. And so we can go to him. This is the God that we serve. This is the Jesus that we love. He is a helper. And so let's worship him for being that. Because one of the ways that we're gonna do this is taking communion. When you, when you walked in, you got this. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he grabbed his disciples and he said, this is, he took the bread and he said, this is my body, it's broken for you. And then he says, this is my blood that is shed for you. And we can look at this and we can say, absolutely, God is my helper. He helped me overcome what sin has done in my life. Praise be to God. He's forgiven me. He's brought me into the family. I have eternity to look forward to. And we celebrate that with communion. I also want you to know that this points not just to the cross and our forgiveness and our redemption, but also to what Jesus consistently does in our life that he didn't just help us on that moment on the hill at Calvary. He didn't just help us with our sin problem as he rose from the dead, which we celebrated on Easter. But he's with us. He's still with us. And the Holy Spirit empowers us, guides us, helps us in every aspect of life. And so as you take communion today, I just want you to remind yourself of that. Thank God for saving you for dealing with your sin, for helping you overcome the trajectory of your life towards hell and bringing you to heaven. Thank him for that. But then also thank him for the reality that he's with you today as a helper in any circumstance. And even as we talk about marriage and singleness, because maybe some of you are looking at your marriage and you're like, you don't understand how bad it is. Jesus does. And Jesus can help. Some of you are thinking, like, you don't understand how lonely I feel. Jesus does. He was alone in the tomb. And he's there. He's with you. He can help. So, Doxa, take the bread. As you hold it in your hand, just thank God for the body that was broken for you. Doxa, the body of Christ.
Now take the juice. And as you take this, remind yourself that this is the blood of Christ that was shed for you, the redemption from your sin that you need, and thank him for that. God is good. God is here. God is with you. He loves you. He's your helper. Let's cling to that promise as we worship and sing to him. So I'm going to invite you to stand and I'm going to pray. Father, thank you for your word. God, even as we open up into a chapter that just is talking about like marriage and singleness and sex and divorce and that somehow it always points back to Jesus. And so God, we praise you that you are our helper, that you're our savior. And so with wherever we're at, I pray for the marriages that are going through it right now. God, that you would break in and maybe even just help one of them to just embrace living as one, to embrace like being selflessly servant-hearted, to be radically committed. We just ask that you just help all of our marriages to thrive and to flourish because we know that when our marriages are good, it's a beautiful picture of the gospel of you, Jesus, and your love for us. And so we ask that you help. God, I do pray for those that are single, that you would just meet them wherever they're at with that, with a perspective and an understanding of how good you are, even in the midst of maybe a painful season. God, no word that I can say is going to change anybody's life, so I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would break in this week. So God, we, we love you. Thank you for Jesus, that we have a reason to sing a hope to hold on to. We pray this in his name.